Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, common special needs and international adoption with Dr. Kamara Gustafson. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota. She has her Master's of Public Health, and she also has an appointment at the University of Minnesota Adoption Medicine Clinic. Dr. Gustafson, welcome to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for talking with us today about a topic that we get a whole lot of questions on. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. We're going to start by talking about not only what the common special needs, but also just briefly, what are they and how involved is post-adoption care, be it through surgeries or through therapy or through parenting challenges? Um, Because I think that's what parents need to think about when they uh, when, we, when they're checking off the list of all the things that they are, are willing to accept or they have a referral of a specific child that has a condition uh, it seems to me that they need to be thinking about um, how that how the impact will affect the child how it will affect their family how what type of, of uh, therapies and surgeries or even if that would be required so I've got a list of common special needs So we're going to just go down the special needs and you tell us just generally what it is and then what's involved with it. How, how um, uh, people will say, well, how big of a special need it is. I, I always object to that because I'm not really sure that that's the the way that we measure a a need, but uh, you can, we can talk about how involved the care would be. Uh, All right. So let's start with cerebral palsy. What exactly is cerebral palsy? Yeah. So cerebral palsy is usually, um, Uh, thought to be more of kind of what we call a motor disorder. So it impacts kind of the way that your muscles move and kind of the amount of tone, like how tight or how loose your tone is. Um, It's usually thought to be due to a um, insult to the brain, uh, sometime kind of around the birth process or um, maybe shortly before or kind of during the birth process. Um, And it can uh, vary in terms of severity or kind of degrees. So we think that it can only involve kind of the legs. Um, It can do um, all, you know, the arms and the legs, or it could involve just like one side of the body. So the right side or the left side. And uh, just like with most of the conditions that probably we'll touch base on, um, there's a kind of a spectrum. And so there are people who can have kind of a mild case of cerebral palsy. um, And when we see that, typically we think that kind of uh, cognitively, there's less likely that there's any impact. So that person kind of um, from a cognitive standpoint should be expected to be on the same trajectory, but would have more kind of physical um, limitations or potentially need more kind of uh, therapy geared towards their physical needs. Um, but if they have more motor involvement, then there's more likely to be also a cognitive involvement as well. And so that's kind of something that um potentially families would want to consider. The other thing too is that sometimes CP um, can be under kind of a, not, I don't want to say hidden, but it's like for a younger child, if they don't have um, a definitive diagnosis that the child has CP, sometimes it'll be under what we call hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or HIE. Um, And that is um, a, condition that we think of where the baby right around the time of birth, it could be from birth trauma, that they have kind of a lack of oxygen, um, kind of transiently, but can impact them. So that's something that not uncommonly we'll see where a family will 
send us a referral that has a diagnosis already of HIE, and then we go on to say that uh, kind of signs and symptoms are pointing in the direction that this child has now kind of developed CP, likely as a kind of um, sequelae from that HIE. Okay. And, and isn't cerebral palsy also more common in premature births? It can be, yeah. Again, because um, the premature infant, their brain is a little bit more kind of sensitive or um, just uh, underdeveloped. And so CP uh, can be an insult of any source. So either like lack of oxygen or if there was kind of a transient um, stroke or clot and uh, versus the HIE is usually refers to just um, lack of oxygen. Um, so yes, if there is a premature infant or an infant that was growth restricted in some way, um, that they're gonna be at higher risk that their brain will kind of incur that insult that leads to CP. Gotcha, okay. How involved is the post-adoption care for cerebral palsy? Yeah, so um, again, it's on the spectrum. So for mild cases, it would likely just be a matter of um, ongoing physical therapy, uh, maybe some occupational therapy, and then depending on kind of their um, uh, muscle restriction or kind of muscle condition, they might need um, help from orthopedics, not so much from a surgical standpoint, but for um, splints or kind of casting to help with positioning of the limb um, to the extreme. And then those are the kids that we see that um, they might be wheelchair bound. So that might be limiting in terms of um, kind of mobility and could have impacts for the family in terms of like the layout of their house um, and what kind of, you know, we had a family recently ask, you know, what's the best minivan for a wheelchair? And I was like, I feel kind of dumb. I should know the answer. So I just, <laughs> I just you know, I, I kind of sent out, um, that question to, you know, the group of parents, it was like, they had wheelchairs. They said, what, what's the best minute, you know? And so those are things that, you know, the family was realizing that we need to get a new car. Um, but it can be all the way to where they'll need to see someone, you know, a, a physician multiple times a year, maybe to get um, certain um, medications that help with kind of muscle relaxants or um, treatments. Um, and then Again, on the severe end, because it is CP is caused by an insult to the brain, um, definitely not everyone with CP has um, seizures, but they're higher risk for seizures. So we do see um, children that have CP and have kind of a concurrent seizure disorder. So then that would be kind of an, an added specialist that they need to follow and um, added medication and such. All right. Excellent. Now, heart issues. Um, again, everything we're, we're saying is on a spectrum of severity, but uh, in general, what are some of the more typical heart issues you see in international adoption? Yeah, so very typical, we'll see what we call a PDA or pain ductus arteriosus, um, and sometimes we see a PFO. Um, and these are both can, um, kind of parts of the heart anatomy that are open when before an infant is born and then shortly, should close shortly after an infant is born as they transition from the blood supply from the biological mom to uh, breathing on their own. Um, and so again, like if a baby was born premature, um, sometimes the PDA won't close the way that we expect it to, or that PFO, PFO doesn't um, close. And so if it persists, then um, it's usually kind of diagnosed as a small um, uh, ASD. And uh, what so does ASD stand for? Yeah, atrial septal defect. Gotcha. Um, and so 
so those are probably the most common that we see. And oftentimes those um, may not need uh, any kind of intervention, or if they do, it would be kind of more of a minor surgery and potentially even as simple as, um, and I know any surgery doesn't sound simple, but um, something like they could go to a, a, a cardiac cath lab as opposed to kind of open heart surgery. Okay. Um, then kind of moving down the spectrum, so you can have larger ASDs um, and then VSD, which is a ventricular septal defect, which is kind of the lower part of the heart. So, and then once we get past that, then it tends to get a little bit more complicated. Um, and so similarly, kind of the follow-up and kind of potential treatments um, can be a little bit more involved uh, when we start to get away from kind of the, those uh, top four. So with those four, they require uh, general, either nothing, the child will be hit with the, the, the hole in the heart, um, would be healing on its own, or it would require surgery. And the surgery, it sounds like, could vary between something relatively simple to full-blown uh, surgery on the heart itself. Yeah, and sometimes it depends on, um, so definitely depends on the size of the defect. Um, but also we kind of put it into the context of um, it can depend on the age of the child. So if a child is younger um, than like with an ASD or VSD, we would maybe potentially uh, give them a chance to see if that um, condition is kind of self-resolving. When we get kind of to an older age, so usually when they're kind of grade school and older, the likelihood that it's going to kind of quote unquote fix itself decreases. Mm -hmm. So then that is one where, um, again, depending on kind of the size, the family would, we would recommend that the family talk to a cardiologist about, is this something that can just be followed or does it, you know, really need to be addressed? And, um, and oftentimes we look to see, uh, you know, other, we can get a, a little bit of a sense from kind of some of the medical information that's available pre-adoption, kind of that pre-medical review, looking to see, you know, how is the child doing overall? Are they growing? Are they developing? Um, if the heart is struggling, it will definitely um, have impacts in terms of growth and development. And so sometimes we can pick up kind of these little hints to see, um, you know, likelihood of the child needing more kind of uh, support and therapy versus less. So a child with a heart issue, do they have um, either surgical, whether it's surgically repaired or if it, if it heals on its own, um, for the ones that you've mentioned, the four more common heart issues, does a child have a normal life expectancy and a normal life? In other words, can they, can they partake of the activities of, of, of a normal childhood and will they live as long as other children? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it really depends on the kind of um, congenital heart defect that they have, um, and then depends on whether or not it's been addressed or partially addressed um, in their pre-adoptive country, mm -hmm. um, at what age, um, and, um, and kind of how well was the, you know, surgery or intervention, um, how successful was it? Um, and then those factors, you know, we can see ones that even if they have a major defect and it was addressed, you know, very early on in kind of the early infancy period, and they've been doing well, that they may not have um, life expectancy all the way, you know, to the full life, but it would be well into adulthood. But, uh, but then we can see other ones where if it's not repaired, um, and what I'm thinking of is that we 
oftentimes we'll break the heart into um, kind of two categories, one being uh, hypoxic, meaning that their body is unable to get enough oxygen to their whole body or kind of non-hypoxic. And so if they're in the hypoxic category, we know that the longer that they go with kind of suboptimal levels of oxygen, um, that can have an impact on just the way that their organs are functioning and then specifically how their brain is functioning and growing. So um, those people would uh, more likely have kind of a cognitive in impact um, with the heart condition and then more likely would be thought to have kind of a shortened life expectancy. And maybe, you know, depending on the severity, again, may not be even um, into adulthood. Okay. And, and with um, all the special needs we are talking about, keep in mind that uh, you would obviously be needing both pre, uh, pre-acceptance of a referral um, and even perhaps if as you're checking off the list of what you're willing to accept, um, you need to converse with a uh, adoption medicine clinic uh, or your pediatrician, but in particular, an adoption medicine clinic to help you understand more specifics. And especially that is the case after you have a referral because you have a child and you have the records from that child. So obviously yeah, and- take that to a clinic and to a, uh, to a doctor who can help you evaluate the specifics for this child. Right. I, I totally agree. And we find, um, so we do, you know, over 30,000 um, pre-adoption reviews kind of since the inception of the clinic um, about 30 years ago. And with the high number of pre-adoption reviews that we do, we found that um, part of the reason that families like it is that kind of their um, comfort level and um kind of the expectations that they have pre-adoption, you know, pre kind of meeting their child are just um, kind of significantly improved in terms of what to expect and what the um, kind of the first couple weeks or months will be. And then even down the road in terms of years and kind of decades after um, versus where we also will see families in clinic um, that have maybe not had that pre-adoption review. um, And we, they, I think, are a little bit more kind of a deer in headlights in terms of, mm-hmm. okay, gosh, there's all these specialists I need to see. The one thing I want to kind of mention that you um, touched on, which I think is a great thought, when one kind of the way that I start too from families is when you're thinking of the list of, you know, kind of what are conditions that you feel comfortable um, both in your home, but I think logistically thinking about where you live. And so what are your resources? You know, if you are in the middle of nowhere and the kind of the closest regional hospital is hours away, um, then maybe a kid with a heart condition is not a a great fit for you because, you know, the closest pediatric cardiologist could be in the next Mm -hmm. state. Um, Versus if you live in a metro area and you have access to um, kind of a whole wealth, then, then that's not as much of a concern. Um, so that's something that I tell families because depending on families, if they have other children, you know, do you, you know, I know that uh, we, I have three boys and I know that having kids is all about being in the car and just shuttling small bodies around all over the place. <laughs> but, um, you know, so now do you want to add in other doctor's visits, therapy visits, you know, and if you're, if any visit requires at least, you know, an hour drive, that's going to be a significant amount mm-hmm. of your time. That's um, such okay. a good point. Yeah. I think that's a really good point to think through the logistics of what the special need may require. Um, 
if, if it's a, a very involved heart condition and you have to go to a specialty hospital, that, a hospital that specializes in, in, in pediatric cardiology, and that's going to require out-of-state travel. How, how can you handle that? How from a job standpoint, from a family standpoint? So all of those are, are just uh, are so important. So thank you for, for raising them. All right, cleft lip and cleft palate. That used to be a fairly common one that we saw coming from uh, China in particular, but other countries as well. They explained what cleft lip and cleft palate is and, and what the, uh, the typical care regime would be to repair it. Yeah, so um, we still see it um, not too infrequently. Um, so cleft lip and cleft palate is a condition where kind of the body as it's forming um, before birth and of the face starts on the outside and kind of comes together. And so that for some reason, it doesn't fully come together kind of in the lip area, um, right, kind of right under the nose. And then the palate is that kind of hard part on the top, uh, the roof of the mouth. And so it doesn't kind of fully close there as well. Um, we oftentimes um, from China, uh, it's both cleft lip and cleft palate. Um, and so, um, and from other countries as well, uh, depending on the country, the, the lip is oftentimes repaired. Sometimes um, it's not repaired very well. So they would need kind of like a plastic surgeon follow-up or kind of revision. Um, but the palate is left unrepaired. And so that's something that definitely for their um, families, they would need to address after a child comes home. Um, it ha can have implications in terms of how well a child is feeding and then speech related just because they can't quite form the sounds or be able to use their tongue in the way that we would hope. Um, and then also we always wanna make sure that they get their hearing tested um, because they can have, uh, because of kind of the defect in that mid face area, it can extend to um, that they have chronic ear infections or um, potential fluid in the ears that's causing hearing difficulty. Um, and then, uh, Sometimes we get children that are young enough that we don't quite know what the impact, if, um, if any, it will have on their teeth, but definitely that would be a child that would need to establish with pediatric dentistry and then orthodontics down the road. Mm -hmm. Cause it could, yeah, it can also be the absence of teeth. So mm -hmm. at the, at a minimum, a number, usually a, a number of surgeries and then, um, and then, and then dental and orthodontia. Yeah, and oftentimes, especially in larger kind of metro areas, there's what we call kind of a comprehensive cleft lip palate clinic. It's usually run through the ear, nose, and throat service. And so that's one where we kind of, they pull together like the um, kind of the ear, nose, and throat surgeons. Sometimes they have plastic surgery or um, oral facial maxill um, surgery. Then you have speech and language therapists, the hearing uh, specialists, and then dentistry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so knowing that there is uh, a, a cleft palate clinic, um, cleft lip and, or cleft clinic uh, would be helpful. Moving yeah. on to developmental special needs. Let's start with Down syndrome. Yeah, one more point I wanted to just make about the cleft um, condition is that about 25 to 30% of kids with clefts, it can, the clefting itself can be associated with a syndrome. So sometimes it's just kind of a physical kind of anatomical condition that's, you know, would require repair, but cognitively, kind of developmentally, we don't expect them to be any kind of different than their kind of non-clefted peers. Mm -hmm. But there is that kind of 25 to 30% of kids that um, it might be part of a larger syndrome. And some of the symptoms can be associated with, 
you know, kind of cognitive um, delays or developmental delays. And so, again, that's something where if families say, yes, we're okay with cleft lip, cleft palate, um, they uh, might be surprised if they get a referral, you know, but then they say, no, we don't want all these syndromes. They might be surprised if they get a referral that seems a little bit more complicated than um, kind of just a simple clefting. So the be aware that cleft lip and cleft palate um, can come can be associated with syndromes that would also infect development and and brain development and and uh, intelligence and other things such as that. Yeah, and that's one where especially for the clefting, because families I think historically you know like when we we used to see more clefts from South Korea and those it was uh, usually kind of associated with um, just the kind of anatomic. So if you're speaking to parents that have older kids that had a cleft lip palate, they, their experience might be, oh, we just came home, we had a couple of surgeries, and otherwise now they're great, and they're in high school, and they're going to go to college next year, and yada, yada. And so, but we um, know that there can be just a higher risk of uh, syndrome-related versus kind of the general population. Mm-hmm. And so that is one that specifically, if a family is going in with the expectation that it's just a physical abnormality, I say you you want to make sure that you're reading that pre-adoption review very closely uh, or kind of the, the medical information closely so that you're not surprised that you're bringing home a child that you think is just anatomic, but mm-hmm. it could be part of um, something more. Good. Okay, excellent. Now let's talk about Down syndrome. The and, and We all know that Down syndrome is a genetic uh, defect. But um, what are some other things that parents, so when people are adopting a child, they are anticipating developmental delays, obviously, um, are developmental impairments, uh, not just delays. What are some other things they should anticipate when accepting a referral of a child with Downs? Yeah, so you're right. I think that when we have families that um, they, we have a pre-medical review for Down syndrome, they are already very well versed in terms of from kind of the genetic and developmental standpoint of the condition. Um, the thing to know that it can be associated with other issues. So we always recommend um, that they be evaluated just to kind of rule it out. Um, they are associated with heart defects, um, digestive systems, so kind of intestinal and stomach issues, ear infections, hearing issues. Um, eye disease, including cataracts, and um, uh, higher rates of um, having difficulty with nearsighted or farsightedness, um, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, there's a very small percentage, but increase versus the general population of certain types of leukemia, oh. and then thi- thyroid dysfunction. Um, and so this is one that um, if it hasn't been done in the pre-adoptive country, we definitely would want to check um, and usually, you know, the some of it has been evaluated. So oftentimes we'll see where they have had a heart evaluation or um, an evaluation of their hearing. Um, and then there's um, kind of preventative care guidelines for um, children and, um, and young adults and adults that have Down syndrome that they would need to continue to follow it. So that would be something they would partner with their, you know, primary care provider. Okay. Um, and again, there's, you know, a very wide spectrum in terms of the, you know, kind of cognitive um, attainment for children with Down syndrome. So some, they might be you know, more severely cognitively impacted versus others, it's mild. Um, and, but um, unfortunately, we can't always predict, you know, with, with a young child, kind of which, which end of the spectrum that they will end on. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because there is such a, a wide variety of degrees of impairment. And and how you know, how do you know if the child is older, then you have a better feel. But if the child is younger, you really yeah. you have to assume that you just you don't know, and and no amount of of um, of, of posted um, uh, of post referral review with a specialist is going to be able to answer that question. Yeah, and that that's one is one that I I definitely um, have some kind of empathy for the family because you know we know that just in general, when we get a child, if we're able to bring a child home when they're younger, kind of the potential for intervention and support um, has you know, better potential impact in terms of um, their you know, future um, a kind of adult attainment. But then at the same time, like you said, that if we have a child that's very young, mm -hmm. we don't quite know you know, what their kind of um, inherent trajectory will be. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a kind of uh, unfortunately, that they're kind of stuck mm -hmm. <laughs> between yeah. both sides, but um, definitely the earlier that we know and we can intervene, we always think is kind of yes. um, has better potential. Plus, we're moving a child earlier from a institutionalized setting, which we know is not good for children, regardless. So, yeah, it cuts both ways. Let me remind everyone that this show is brought to you and underwritten by the support of the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Uh, Post-adoption support programs are vital to helping to preserve families. However, the availability of these programs is not always communicated clearly during the adoption process. And legal professionals and judges are essential to encouraging the use of these, of these services. And we know that families do better when these services are provided. Um, as permissible by law, and it's not, you know, that depends on where you're, you're at, but judges and court clerks and, and adoption agencies uh, can order backpacks through the Jockey Bean Family website. Uh, and these backpacks are free and they can be shipped to the courthouse uh, for adoption day and can be handed out by the judge or the clerk or whatever. And of course, the agencies can also get these. Uh, and they're, uh, they're high quality backpacks. They've got the child's initials. Uh, but most important, inside they have post-adoption uh, services, they have um, um, resources, post-adoption resources for families. To get more information, you can go to their website, jockeybeanfamily.com. All right. Um, how often do we do you see autism as a diagnosis on a child that's been referred? Um, so great question. We don't. Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen a child that's come with a diagnosis of autism. Yeah, I haven't either. So that's interesting. Yeah. And why is that? Well, so I don't necessarily know. Um, you know, the the developmental kind of availability, or sorry, the availability of developmental specialists in these countries is um, pretty low. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, oftentimes if we're asking uh, that a child be um, formally screened by a developmental specialist, um, in many places, you know, like in China specifically or in India, it's um, very unlikely that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think that's part of it. Um, and then again, part of it is that, uh, as you had mentioned or kind of alluded to, that we know that there might be some kind of maladaptive behaviors that are developed mm -hmm. just from institutionalized care. Yeah. And so we have seen children that would meet criteria for autism, you know, based on kind of the way we diagnose, um, but it's more due to the in institutionalized care than kind of that they have underlying autism. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, um, we've also seen children that, you know, it's suspicious or has become clear kind of over time that they mm -hmm. are 
very likely autistic. Um, and so the absence of an autism diagnosis in your referral and your medical paperwork that you get with a child is not necessarily reflective of much because we're not going to, they, they're seldom, it's seldom diagnosed uh, abroad. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. And so that's where sometimes it, it, it is, or not sometimes, but that's where I feel like it helps to have kind of an expert uh, review of the chart because you can look to see even at the younger ages developmentally if there's some kind of red flags or things that are kind of peaking your level of suspicion in terms of autism and then oftentimes if we do hear or kind of see things that might be a little bit of, um, of a concern uh, I, I will rec always try to request video um, and say, you know, can we have video of the child moving about, interacting with other children, interacting with their caregivers, um, to get a kind of a sense of, um, you know, those more subtle signs that might not come up on the review. And, um, and then, you know, we always, if, if possible, we'll ask, you know, can we make sure that we're screening them for any hearing issues? Because, you know, if they can't hear, then maybe that's a reason why they're not uh, interacting and such. Mm -hmm. But I would say that um, most of the children that we catch that are kind of the high likelihood of being autistic, it's a family that has started to follow along or, you know, is in the pre kind of match period um, and maybe has even gotten as far as it accepted the referral. And then in that waiting period before they're bringing the child home, they're getting updates and they're getting videos. And as the child grows, we're saying, well, this is pretty consistent behavior mm -hmm. or, you know, the behavior is becoming more concerning because as they age, we would expect them to do more. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, that's usually um, in my experience, how we have sometimes kind of come to that diagnosis. Okay. And, and how can you tell whether a developmental delay is something that is caused by um, the, the pre-adoption living environment and how much of that is going to, how, that, how much of that is going the child with good loving care and, and good support in a home, the child will outgrow. Yeah. That's, so usually what we ask is we say, you know, how does this child compare to the other children in the institution? Um, and because oftentimes the caregivers in the institution, even if they don't necessarily say, oh, uh, yes, you know, we know that this child has autism, they kind of have a sense of there's something about this kid that's a little different than the mm -hmm. other kids. And yeah. so, you know, if everyone's kind of got a mild delay or, you know, the behaviors are um, kind of mildly maladaptive because of the, the setting, um, you know, for the most part, those kids we think have the potential to kind of rebound and recover with the right intervention, right support. But the ones that are autistic, generally, they'll even be a little bit more pronounced. Um, and to the point where the orphanage caregivers will say, you know, that's the one that is a little bit trickier to deal with or mm -hmm. definitely kind of stands out compared to the other two or three-year-olds that we're seeing. Okay, excellent. Now, hepatitis B and C, um, how common is that? And, and what is the prognosis? Yeah, so um, we haven't actually seen a lot of hepatitis. I would say the, the main country that I've seen it in recently would be um, Haiti. Um, and uh, and some of it was just that we didn't have a pre-adoption um, uh, lab finding. So that I think that there wasn't, a, there wasn't really pre-adoption screening um, available to the family. Um, I would say that previously we used to think that hepatitis was a more serious condition and definitely, um, you know, 
domestically, if a child is born here, we always try to vaccinate them shortly after birth um, with hepatitis B, or um, we screen all uh, pregnant women for hepatitis B, because the most common um, kind of means of transmission for a child is uh, through pregnancy and during kind of the birth um, process. Um, but uh, I will say that both hepatitis B um, and C are now, I think, in the gastroenterology world, starting to be considered more likely a chronic condition. So not necessarily life-limiting in the sense of that they're not going to make it to adulthood, but mm -hmm. they'd have more complications as an older adult. Hepatitis C, there's a recent medication um, regimen that has been approved, um, I think, on the adult side. And so they're hoping it's going to trickle down to the pediatric side, but is essentially thought to be uh, curable. Um, so now it's considered you know, not necessarily a chronic condition, but something that has the potential to be cured. And then I think the thought is that the, um, they might be able to translate that over to hepatitis B. So what I've been telling families um, is that um, those I'm not as concerned about it. Uh, we would definitely want that child to follow along with a pediatric gastroenterologist um, and that their risk of um, liver dysfunction, especially as an older adult, um, and then they have a increased risk of certain types of liver cancers. So again, would need to follow closely. Um, and but historically, it, that was thought to be more of an issue, and that they the likelihood would be that they would need potentially liver transplant. We're not seeing that as much because we're able we have kind of more medications and treatments to better treat it. And then the other thing I tell families is that you know this. Treatment for hepatitis C has really come down in the last like 10 to 15 years. And so if a child is very young and then coming with hepatitis B or C as a young infant or young child, you know, the potential that, you know, 10, 15 years from now, we discover something even better um, is there. And mm -hmm. so if kind of in my hierarchy of things to consider, that one is is pretty low. And in, in my mind, one that I think could be um, relatively well, easily managed. Okay, what about HIV now? There's been so many advances, but have we overplayed those in the media to, to, to where it's no longer a, a threat to a person's life? So what do we know about HIV? Yeah, so similarly, HIV is now thought to be kind of a chronic condition. And again, for HIV and hepatitis B and C, these are ones that can be transmitted most commonly through, you know, um, and bodily fluids, so blood and um, other bodily fluids. But uh, what I also tell families is the risk to the immediate family is is pretty low, especially if the conditions are under good control and under good medical management. So something that sometimes families will ask me, well, we have other children in the house. Is that something we should be worried about? Or what are the implications for my child at school or kind of after school activities? There should be no restrictions from that standpoint. And there's no really increased risk for the parents or, you know, any siblings, potential siblings. Um, but yeah, getting back to HIV, it's something that we now think of as kind of a chronic condition. Again, they would need to follow with kind of an immunologist or infectious disease specialist and would need to um, potentially take medication lifelong. But I think of it similar to like diabetes or um, certain um, kind of more benign kidney conditions. It's not something that should really kind of shorten their life. Um, the implication sometimes that families think about is that, um, you know, what happens when they get to adulthood and they think about partnering um, and potentially having their own children. So that is something that 
you know, needs to be considered. Um, but I think that uh, definitely the infectious disease and immunologists I work with, um, commonly they say that that's something that oftentimes they start having that conversation kind of with the child early on. And there are, are ways in which they can, you know, have a, a full life as an adult without feeling like they have any restrictions. Okay. And let's talk about some of the more common orthopedic issues. And the ones that come to mind are clubfoot and limb and, 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 and digit differences or deficiencies. Yep. Um, are, are those, how common are clubfoot and, and limb issues? Yeah, so we don't see it as commonly anymore, um, but we still do see some. Uh, so those are really thought to be uh, just a uh, kind of anatomical abnormality. So oftentimes it has to do with positioning of the child in the womb prior to delivery. That sometimes that if they're positioned in a certain way or um, if there's not maybe quite enough am uh, amniotic fluid that the foot is not allowed to grow uh, in the way that we would hope. Um, and so that's something that uh, can be sometimes treated just with like casting and helping the foot to kind of reposition once that um, external pressure is gone after the child is born. Similarly for like limb or digit issues, that's typically caused by a condition called amniotic band syndrome, where the amniotic fluid actually creates kind of a band in the womb and will um, such that it, it makes it so that the fingers or the hand can't grow. Um, and so it's usually more of kind of a cosmetic. A lot of times it's a pretty amazing when these kids come, they're um, kind of very uh, well used with that limb. And so it would be kind of amazing to, for, for me to see and for others to see like how well they use it, even if they're missing you know, most of their fingers or you know, their, even their whole hand, they've been able to compensate well. Mm -hmm. So, and then nowadays with the, you know, kind of the way that we're advancing in terms of prosthesis, um, there's a lot of kind of options for families um, in terms of different prosthesis that a child can um, use um, to help to compensate if need be. But some of the children don't even really need a prosthesis. It would be more like a cosmetic if they mm -hmm. wanted it. But again, something that families should consider the logistics of if their child is, uh, does have I mean, even if it's just for cosmetic reasons, that they would want to be able to have access and get to the, you know, because they, the prosthetics would take both training as well as fittings Correct. and things like that. All right. Yep. All right. Let's talk about albinism. Um, that um, how common is that? And, and what is the, uh, what is the treatment? Um, and what else accompanies? Uh, is it just cosmetic? Are there other conditions that could uh, they also are associated with uh, with albinism. Yeah, so um, I wouldn't say that it's um, extremely common, but I have seen a couple pre-reviews, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, so it's a condition uh, usually caused uh, by um, genetic that leads to uh, kind of the lack of or a decreased amount of pigment in the you know different parts of the body, so the skin, the hair, and the eyes. Kind of depending on which country they're coming from, it can be more kind of um, immediately obvious or not. You know, so I've seen some some children that are coming from kind of the African countries where we expect that they're going to have more melanin or coloration in their their um, skin, and so it's kind of more uh, immediately obvious. Whereas I've seen some children coming from China where you know the skin 
and a bit baseline is paler. And so um, if you don't look closely, kind of the hair maybe looks blonder as opposed to white. Um, so it's not like immediately obvious that the, they have is albinism to kind of the untrained eye. Um, most common things that are associated with it that would definitely need to be evaluated would be that there's a high rate of visual impairment because of the color, like the pigmentation and the way that that works in the eye. Um, and so it can be anywhere from mild where they just need glasses to severe where they're essentially legally blind. Um, and so that's something for families to consider because definitely, you know, if you have a child that's legally blind, that's going to be um, lead to kind of greater implications in terms of like short-term and long-term um, and the resources that they will need. And then um, practically the other thing that um, needs to be considered is that their skin because of the lack of pigmentation is um, much, much more sensitive to sun exposure. So they families would need to be very vigilant about kind of skincare and that child would need to be followed by dermatology um, kind of on a regular basis. Doesn't need to be super frequent, but you know, would need to establish with um, pediatric dermatology kind of early on. And then the last thing would be, again, um, social implications. So that one's a little bit kind of more um, nebulous and kind of hard to, to say, but, um, you know, this is a child that is already going to have some kind of the social concepts in terms of being internationally adopted and likely not looking like their family. But then if they are looking to kind of find kind of their quote unquote group. And let's say that the child is adopted from, you know, Congo and their group is, you know, very dark skinned at baseline that now all of a sudden they're kind of even, you know, the odd duck out within that group too. So those are just things to kind of think about for the family. Um, then, like I said, it's more nebulous. So I, I can't kind of say that every child that has albinism is going to, you know, have issues with kind of their, um, social concept and whatnot, but. Yeah, no, but that's a, that's a, that's a, parents need to consider that. What are some other common causes of vision impairment uh, and, and how common are they in international adoption? Yeah, so um, we can see some congenital glaucoma or cataracts. Um, sometimes it's due to um, kind of infectious disease around the time that the child is um, before they're born. Um, but um, I don't see uh, a ton of vision issues. It, usually if they do have a kind of a known vision issue, it's um, potentially associated with another syndrome. So like Down syndrome um, or albinism. Um, we, I haven't seen a lot of kids where they are coming um, with just kind of the vision okay. um, as the only issue. What about hearing? Oh, so hearing is, is pretty common. Um, so we know that children, especially children that are living in an institutional setting, um, are at higher risk for kind of undiagnosed ear infections. Just, you know, that kind of if you think about kids in daycare, they're always sick. Um, and, um, and so if they have kind of recurrent or chronic ear infections that aren't diagnosed, so they're at higher risk that that might cause some damage, either kind of temporary or permanent in terms of their hearing. Um, so when there's a, and so we oftentimes will see speech delay, like a kind of a mild speech delay with these kids. And again, we're trying to piece out, is it because of, you know, lack of opportunity and the institutionalized care, or is it because they just can't hear? Um, so not unfrequently, we'll ask if we can get kind of a formal hearing test just to rule out hearing as an issue. 
Um, if it is a matter that they have um, just a kind of a physical blockage, so like extra fluid or whatnot, that usually is easily corrected. They can get ear tubes or um, other, you know, kind of procedures to help with that. Um, but then um, goes all the way to the spectrum that they have um, kind of a nerve dysfunction for their hearing. And so what I'm thinking of more co most commonly is that um, there's a infection called CMV that can ca be um, kind of higher risk for pregnant women. For adults or, you know, someone who's pregnant, CMV usually feels like you have a really bad cold but unfortunately can have greater implications for the unborn child. And the most common cause or kind of most common implication would be um, hearing loss or kind of hearing impairment. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And you may or may not um, know about, depending again, depending on the age of the child, you may or may not know of the, uh, of a hearing loss, although there's usually evidence in the, in the file that would indicate yeah, so the most common kind of um, hint of hearing loss is that they have a speech delay because if you can't hear, then you can't kind of hear the sounds that you need to be able to reproduce. Um, and so speech delay, even in younger infants, we you know can be translated to that they don't babble a lot or they don't um, turn to sound um, or they don't kind of um, try to interact. So again, going back to the autisms, that's why we also, for children, that there's the concern that they're not appropriately interacting with their surroundings. We always want to make sure to check their hearing because um, it could be something as kind of simple as that they can't hear um, mm -hmm. versus you know, that they have autism. Okay. So from the standpoint of treatment, if you have a child, it depends on the cause of the hearing loss. If it's a matter of fluid in the ear, as you point out, that's relatively easy. Um, uh, tubes in the ear and or medication or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if it is caused by nerve damage, then you need to be prepared that your child um, will have a permanent hearing loss. And that would involve things like um, special education, learning sign language, and, and, and all that goes with that. Yeah, and for some of the kids we have seen, um, they have been fortunate that they've been able to get cochlear implants, you know, even in their country, pre-adoptive. Um, so there are um, treatments that can be done to kind of augment, you know, hearing aids or even to the end of the spectrum of having a, an implant to kind of um, provide another means to um, kind of restore their hearing. But families should know that there are certain types of hearing impairment that are not able to be fully corrected or correctable at all. So um, I know that with cochlear implants, I think kind of the, sometimes the population thinks, oh, like even if you can't mm -hmm. hear, there's a way to fix it. And that probably is the case for the majority, but there's always going to be that minority that might not be able to hear. And, and cochlear implants aren't like it restores your hearing to what the, the, what the average person hears. It certainly improves or it can improve, but it's not the, it's not the same as normal hearing. Yeah, it might not be. And then the other thing too would be, again, you know, we think about when was the intervention made at what age is the child? So if they're kind of pre-verbal or post-verbal, that can have implications on their speech. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if uh, what's difficult is sometimes, you know, this, these a lot of these kids are coming kind of right in that, you know, kind of perfect window when we're expecting that their language to really blossom. And so if mm -hmm. we kind of um, are starting to make interventions a little bit after that, then there's going to be a lot of catch up in terms of trying to get their speech back on track. Okay. Let me remind people again, we've talked about Jockey Being Family, but I also wanted to talk about our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information. 
and wanting it to end in both pre and post adoption. One such agency is Spence Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency in the uh, New York City metro area. Uh, and they've been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. And they are known for their post-adoption services. And they, they cover the entire triad, birth parents, adoptive parents, and, adro- and adoptees. And uh, they really have a stellar program for, for post-adoption, regardless of, of your role in the, in the triangle. And that is Spence Chapin. All right, so uh, let's talk about uh, urogenital issues. What does that include and, and how common are they? Yeah, so it's a um, great question. I think the most common one that we see can be um, kind of break into two categories. One would be that we see something called imperforate anus, meaning that the um, kind of the outlet for the large intestine, so you know the way that a person um, has a bowel movement is is closed, and so would need to be opened. And then the other kind of category would be that um, their genitalia does not appear kind of the way that we would expect based on their chromosomes. So if, you know, if chromosomally we think that they're a girl or more often what it is is that we say that they have XY so that they're a boy chromosomally, but the genitalia is a little confusing in terms of that we don't see kind of the penis and the testicles the way that we would expect. Um, and so those are kind of the two main categories. When we go down kind of the imperfect anus category, so that is, um, something that can be associated with a condition called Bacterol, which stands for vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheoesophageal, renal, and limb. Um, and this is an, what we call an association. So it's not a syndrome. So we don't know, it's not like a genetic cause that causes all of these things. But for kind of a reason that we don't fully always know, that child has um, all these different kind of abnormalities in different parts of their body. Um, and so the, if a child has Bacterol, then we, you know, target the interventions and treatments to the, the different abnormalities they have. Um, cognitively, those children shouldn't necessarily have any kind of restriction in terms of um, cognitive development and, and growth. The one thing is for the imperfect anus, depending on kind of the severity of that, those children that I always kind of warn families, may not ever be able to be continent, like in terms of being toilet trained. So of course could have implications for, you know, if you have someone who is cognitively, you know, kind of um, the match to their peers, but still having to wear diapers that has kind of their um, implications for older children and adults for sure. Um, And then uh, when we look kind of down the line in terms of Uh, ambiguous genitalia. So that falls into kind of what we think of disorder of sexual differentiation. Um, When, and this is getting a little bit too into the details, but um, all of us uh, physically as like a unborn infant start out looking more like a female. And then for the boys, their body starts producing testosterone before they're born. And it's the testosterone that causes some of the Kind of um, organs to emerge so that when they're born, they look more uh, physically like uh, a boy, as we would expect. Mm-hmm. And so for our kids that have this DSD, the disorder of sexual differentiation, something has happened to the pathway that um, 
includes testosterone, so it's not produced. And so that just never happens. Um, so oftentimes, those are the kids that, um, at least the files that I've seen, it has been picked up. So they'll have chromosomal studies that have been you know, made available to the family to say this child has chromosomes that are XY, but they look more kind of what we call um, physically like female in terms of um, in their diaper area. So what would be the treatment there? Because if the child is chromosomally male, but physically female, uh, how do parents approach that? Because at this point, yeah. we, you don't want to predetermine, and, and especially because you don't know how the child is going to identify at that age. I mean, right. That, yeah. So yeah, that is um, that you've actually just provided the answer. <laughs> Historically, we used to um, be a little bit too aggressive and say, well, they look, you know, quote unquote female. So we should start doing everything um, to con make them kind of can complete that quote unquote transition. Um, now we know from our experience that that is not the kind of the correct pathway in the sense that um, if, as a young child, there you know we will always try to help to or you know recommend that they establish with endocrinology to figure out kind of what was the um, cause that their body's not producing the testosterone um, and make sure that there's not other things involved in terms of other like growth hormone deficiency or endocrine kind of hormone deficiencies that need to be addressed in the immediate period. Um, but the uh, assuming that, that those things are okay for young children, there's ne not necessarily any specific intervention that needs to be done. It's more kind of allowing the child time to kind of start to uh, develop their own gender identity. And then as we get closer to puberty, and then that would be when we would think about maybe offering more kind of hormonal supplements. Um, and um, either, you know, if, um, to, you know if, if they wanted kind of their appearance to be more masculine or feminine. Um, so like if the, if the child says, well, I am chromosomally XY, but I identify more as a female. So then when we start to hit puberty, we'd have to figure out how do we help their body to not produce testosterone if that pathway has kind of reestablished. Or mm -hmm. uh, on the flip side, you know, how do we um, provide them with testosterone if they identify more as wanting to be kind of male? Okay. Um, so it's, again, it's, um, you know, easy for me to say, it's not easy for the families necessarily, but um, it would be something that for sure families would need to be comfortable with, that with kind of that ambiguity um, and, you know, letting kind of their child guide in terms of um, how they develop. And then there are, you know, surgeries and treatments that can be done down the road, but they're, they're usually deferred. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the other thing too would be, Depending on the state, some states, you know, now have kind of an option to, to do like a third gender or kind of non-gender, non-binary. Um, but um, I'm not 100% versed on, you know, all the 50 states. There might be some states that still will ask the family to assign a gender. Um, and so then potentially, you know, down the road, they would, they would need to kind of change that if the child um, mm -hmm. more closely identifies with the other. And one thing that I think families would have to know is that they're going to have to be prepared to help advocate for this child because yes. they don't fit a norm. And, um, and that's going to require uh, parental interference and help along the way until the child is 
old enough to but old enough to to uh, to decide on their own and also to take over advocating for themselves. The good news, though, is that now um, parents don't have to make the decision until their child is able to start guiding them as to how they feel that that they are um, how they're identifying. And so that actually makes it easier from a parental point of view. Is that the the child is is you're not having to make these decisions until the child is old enough to start giving you input. Yeah, right. So it's, again, kind of the double-edged sword. So the, the parents have to be comfortable with kind of the short-term ambiguity, but long-term wise, they don't feel like they have to carry that whole weight of that decision. Yeah, um, exactly. Where we know now that um, part of that, obviously, you know, should be with the child, that they should be able to have input in terms of um, how they self-identify. And I will say, having talked to parents who have gone through this, um, children do generally self-identify. They they're, they let you know what they, uh, the gender that they think they are, and um, it's not uh, it's not always ambiguous to them. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now, uh, one that that uh, we cannot uh, leave this conversation without talking about because it's such an important one, and that is the impact of trauma. Because the reality is, any child who has been well, especially those children who have been raised, spend any time at all in institutional settings, have experienced some form of, of trauma. So how, uh, what type of impact should parents be prepared for? And, and let's tie into that the age of the child at adoption. Yeah, so I think that similarly to kind of what we were talking about with the um, ambiguous genitalia, we have come um, a great ways in terms of our understanding of trauma and kind of trauma-based care um, and the potential impacts on children. So um, when uh, children were adopted, and and I should have probably mentioned this at the beginning, so I have personal connection to international adoption that I was adopted from Korea as an infant. And um, I came home when I was less than a year old and at the time, you know, my parents, I think the kind of the understanding from the agency was that, oh, if they come home as a baby, you know, we can just nurture them um, and we can kind of over, you know, supersede nature in a way um, and they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're pre-verbal. And so they don't have any memory of kind of that pre-adoption period. Now we know that that's not necessarily the case. And we've had, um, you know, kind of studies that show that, uh, and this is usually more uh, on the, the domestic side, but with a domestic adoption, when a child is placed even right at birth with an adoptive family, um, we know that a child does have uh, a sense of their prenatal environment. So, you know, kind of their potentially hearing sounds, you know, like the people talk about, you know, baby Mozart, and you can expose kind of the unborn child to songs and they can hear the biological mother's voice. Um, so, depending on what that environment is like, if the prenatal environment was very um, stressful um, or there was um, kind of uh, abuse going on to the um, to the pregnant woman, you know, that could have the impact on the infant. Um, and then just even kind of that separation of um, having, or the kind of the transition of having been used to one environment and then all of a sudden being placed in a new environment with new sounds um, and not having any kind of um, known, known environmental input um, can be difficult for some, for some children. And then definitely kind of the longer that I think a child is in either a foster care or institutionalized care and kind of their sense of permanency is not kind of 
fully established, there is a higher risk of um, kind of ongoing trauma or difficulties with attachment and um, being able to establish those bonds going forwards. We have a psychologist through our clinic who, um, she's kind of the world-renowned expert, Dr. Maria Kirpina, in terms of um, toxic stress and um, kind of trauma-based care for you know, looking at these kids for international adoption. And we know that from her extensive research that um, children, when they're very, very young, they have kind of their way to buffer toxic stress would be through typically their parent or their caregiver. Um, for when kids get to be older, so kind of that preteen to teen, their go-to is not necessarily going to be their parent. So that's something that um, adoptive families need to consider when they're thinking about adopting older children, um, that it, ideally that, that child will still be able to form a bond with someone, but it might not be with the parents in the setting. It might be another kind of um, close caregiver or close adult or even a peer um, in their kind of post-adoptive environment. Another thing that um, I think it's important for parents who are adopting children who have been institutionalized to consider is the possibility of sexual abuse. And quite often we don't, there is nothing in the records, um, although sometimes there might be. So how common do you believe that is or how, how aware should parents be who are adopting children who have been institutionalized? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, if a child is, um, kind of middle grade school and older, um, and they've been in an institutionalized setting, um, that the, unfortunately kind of the likelihood is, is pretty high. Um, and so, especially if, if it's an institutionalized setting where there's a, a wide range of ages, you know, kind of infancy up to some of the orphanages that we see, there's um, teens that, and you know, and you think that those teens now have been there since they were a baby. So, um, kind of have all the potential maladaptive behaviors from that experience. Um, so those are the ones that um, I kind of, unfortunately say it's, um, you kind of have to assume that it's happened. And if you're pleasantly surprised that they haven't had that experience, then that's great. But I would kind of operate on that there's very high likelihood that it has um, versus the other way around. If it's not, like, as you mentioned, if it's not noted, that doesn't necessarily mean that it hasn't happened. I will say we have a number of courses on parenting children who have been sexually abused. The, the, um, the common assumption that these children all turn into abusers themselves is not accurate. And there is a, a lot that can be done, but it is something that, again, parents need to realize it will require their involvement in therapy and, uh, and and work with the child. So it's something that they need to go in being prepared to find a therapist that can help their child. Yeah, definitely. And I think along those lines that, like I was saying that um, for, if you're considering older, you know, adopting kind of an older, like middle-aged to older child, I think again, operating on the assumption that it's the very high likelihood that either physical or sexual abuse has occurred, even if it's not noted in the chart and kind of um, 
being more proactive in terms of their therapeutic support early on versus if you think, oh, it doesn't have any mention of it, so this isn't an issue. Those are probably the kids that we see that as they get older and start to kind of um, cognitively kind of wrap their mind around their pre-adoptive experience that struggle, potentially struggle more um, if it hasn't been addressed kind of um, from the get-go. Okay, and the last... Uh, special uh, special need I want to talk about is prenatal exposure. I don't want to go into a lot of detail because again, we have quite a few courses uh, yeah. on every type of prenatal exposure, alcohol, drugs, and, and tobacco, and marijuana, you name it. So, uh, but if you could just generally uh, talk about how common prenatal exposure is, and then now we use that as a segue into uh, talking about what you the most common special needs you see from various countries. But first, before we do that, let's talk just briefly about prenatal exposure and how common and, and the impact. Yeah, so prenatal exposure is is very common, and um, it does depend on the country of origin um, that we see kind of varying degrees. Um, but uh, the one that I want to definitely highlight um, as being kind of in my mind the most important would be uh, alcohol exposure. Mm -hmm. I think that um, oftentimes because alcohol is so prevalent in our uh, environment and, you know, that kind of social drinking is, you know, for the most part accepted that when people see prenatal exposure and they see like cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine, they're like, oh my gosh, look at all of these. And if, you know, alcohol's on the list or cigarettes, they're like, oh, that's not too bad. You know, everyone, we know someone who smokes cigarettes or, you know, has a glass of wine here and there. From a clinical perspective, in my mind, alcohol is probably the one that I'm most concerned about. Um, so we know that, um, Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is the number one cause for preventable developmental delay or kind of um, developmental and cognitive impairment. And so that is one that I think, again, we're kind of learning more and more as we go, but it's something that I think that families definitely need to be aware of. Um, and I know we'll talk a little bit about this um, with the specific countries, but just for example, I think when more of the Eastern European countries were open um, and families were adopting from places like Russia or um, Romania. Uh, and we didn't know, or we, I think FASD was not kind of as widely known at the time. Um, we know that the prevalence of alcohol use among uh, women of childbearing age in those countries is very, very high. So again, similar to kind of sexual abuse, when I would see files from those countries, I would assume that there was alcohol exposure unless told otherwise. Um, but I think that those are where sometimes families find that if they come home and they're young and they seem to be doing okay, that doesn't necessarily rule out that they won't have problems going on because commonly those types of issues will develop as a child gets older mm -hmm. um, and into kind of adolescence and then into adulthood and ha can have pretty serious implications, more so than um, some, some of these other ones that I think families would feel like uh, initially would be more um, overwhelming. But I think FASD is by far one of the more common causes that we see that families are struggling with post-adoption in our clinic in person. And another myth that people have is that if a child does not have the, the facial features, of fetal alcohol exposure um, that the child has not been exposed and that simply isn't the case. Yeah, uh, correct, absolutely. So we don't know when the facial features 
um, completely develop um, during the um, kind of prenatal period. But we know that there can be alcohol exposure that can cause brain changes, which we, and they would be subtle. So it wouldn't necessarily be brain changes that we would see by brain imaging, but mm -hmm. brain changes meaning um, cognitive functioning deficit um, that there, and there's no evidence of um, any facial feature mm -hmm. kind of um, exactly. impact. All right, so um, I'm, I'm going uh, to start with um, prenatal exposure and go through the uh, most uh, the prevalent, uh, the most, uh, the major placing countries to for international adoption to the U.S. All right, so how common is uh, prenatal exposure, alcohol or drugs, in in China? So uh, China is very very low. I think when we think about prenatal exposure, um, the for alcohol and drugs, the most common countries that we see would be like Central and South America. Um, it kind of depends on for Central and South America. Sometimes we see um, children that are coming from kind of the native or indigenous um, kind of uh, population in the area, and so it's less. I think. Um, potentially with some of those um, subpopulations, but kind of on, on par, I would say that that's one area. Another area would be definitely um, kind of, again, Eastern Europea, so the Bulgaria, Ukraine areas. Mm -hmm. We still see um, high use of alcohol and, um, and then other uh, drugs. And then uh, I think sometimes people are surprised, but South Korea now has taken the place of Russia in terms of the number one, like kind of the top country that we see for alcohol exposure. Mm -hmm. um, not so much the other drugs, um, but definitely alcohol and some nicotine. And then um, we're starting to see more pre-adoption reviews um, coming through from Southeast Asia. So um, kind of Thailand and Vietnam. And um, those, I would say, um, also have um, kind of a higher likelihood of um, substance or, or alcohol exposure. Okay, excellent. What about African countries? Usually it's low. Um, sometimes it kind of depends on the country. So historically, like Muslim countries, uh, the you know because of religious adherence, they abstain from alcohol, and um, so we don't see it as much. Uh, like historically, Ethiopia, uh, we didn't see any alcohol exposure. And then um, the other countries that uh, just the um, kind of standard of living in terms of uh, cost is so low. So I think that's where we see in China, both socially and then the cost of some of these substances is so kind of exorbitant relative to, you know, food and water and shelter. Uh, similarly, like Haiti. Um, and then uh, if country, you know, I'm thinking like Marshall Islands, uh, which is kind of a small program, but um, that the just the cost of uh, these substances, you know, that they're just trying to figure out how to get food um, okay. kind of on a regular basis. So we're not seeing a lot of extra kind of drugs or alcohol. And what about India? Oh, uh, similarly, yeah. So India, um, again, we don't see a lot of drugs or alcohol exposure. Okay. All right. So for China, which is the number one uh, placing country to the U.S., what are the most typical special needs you're seeing? Yeah, so it's um, a little bit of a gamut, but I would say that, um, so I talked to um, Dr. Dana Johnson, who you know is um, the founder of our clinic um, and one of my mentors, and I kind of think of him as like the father of international adoption. So, I do too. <laughs> yeah, um, and he has extensive experience in China um, and 
and so what he was saying that kind of families can think of is that um, from China, you know, that the the director kind of of the orphanage and then kind of the minister of adoption, they kind of have to bless the the um, child's file, you know, as it's making its way to the U.S. And so they don't necessarily kind of pass a file forward unless they feel that the child is adoptable. Um, so then because of that, there's a high number of kind of surgical or slash kind of correctable um, conditions. So we see a lot of, um, you know, heart conditions. We see cleft lip, cleft palate. Um, we do see like albinism or dwarfism um, and then kind of the, you know, ambiguous genitalia um, and orthopedics. Uh, and then we see uh, um, Down syndrome um, is kind of the one that I would say would be kind of more quote unquote, like the social, um, I mean, kind of social concept of Down syndrome in China is, is um, not the same as it is here. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily see ones from China that would be kind of fall into the typical category of like prenatal exposure or kind of trauma based. So we're not a lot of like sexual abuse, physical abuse, or um, kind of known emotional trauma. Even uh, that, in older children? Yeah, so it, it's not noted in the chart, I guess I yeah. should say. Yeah, I was going to say, but I think, again, given if your child has been institutionalized. Correct. Uh, in, in, okay, so let's, uh, going down the list, India, what are you seeing? So India, it's um, malnutrition, um, and, um, and then we are seeing some of um, developmental delays, so it could be, you know, kind of like a CP, a prematurity um, related, um we're not seeing so much of the kind of the surgical correctable um but some of the ones where it's a little bit uh vague in terms of that they have a hearing loss we don't quite know yet you know what that is or they're um having some developmental delay but we're not we're not quite sure is it because of institutionalized impact or is there some underlying cause um but not quite the same of the kind of quote unquote syndromes that you would necessarily associate with china Okay, what about Colombia? So Colombia, I would say, is probably much more on the end of the spectrum in terms of like emotional trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, and then prenatal exposure. Those are usually older children and oftentimes come with a sibling set. Um, and so there was something that happened to maybe one of the children that, you know, they were removed from the care of their parents. Okay, what about Ukraine? So Ukraine, we see a lot of prenatal exposure um, and developmental delays. Um, you know, all the way from, you know, again, uh, institutional impact all the way to, you know, kind of diagnosable autism. Um, we don't see as much of the kind of conditions that you would see, like the surgical or kind of quote unquote correctable conditions that you might see from China. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I will say about Ukraine and sometimes from Bulgaria, families might be a little bit overwhelmed because those charts sometimes will come and they have just a whole slew of quote unquote diagnoses. Um, but we call them kind of the, the garbage pail diagnoses. Like they don't, they don't actually exist. They don't really mean much. So that's where, again, having kind of a medical professional help you to kind of piece through and say what's, what's real and what's that they're kind of throwing this on because um, they feel like something's wrong, but they, they don't quite know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. And just the way different uh, medical um, uh, communities function and diagnosis is, is just different and it helps to have somebody who's seen a lot of them. Yeah. All right. What about South Korea? 
So South Korea, the number one for sure would be uh, alcohol exposure. Um, I will say that um, for other conditions, for the most part, um, South Korean medical um, network is probably on par, if not um, better than what we have available to us in the US. Um, so if there are other issues, like if there's um, congenital birthmarks or um, heart issues, uh, seizure disorders, um, they are getting typically exceptional care in South Korea before that they, you know, medical care before they come home. Um, and as I'm sure many families know, South Korea is predominantly a foster based, foster care based system. So they're usually with, you know, kind of a more typical like nuclear family with a foster mom and dad and maybe some siblings. So getting a little bit more of that one-on-one -on -one attention than you might in some of the other countries. Okay. How about Haiti? Um, Haiti, we still see a lot of infectious disease and then the impact of um, kind of chronic uh, or acute on chronic malnourishment. Um, so we're seeing a lot of like um, some of the uh, parasites, you know, intestinal parasites. And then, um, like I said, we do, uh, I saw a couple kids recently that had hepatitis B coming from Haiti. Okay. Um, and then Nigeria, I think, um, well, let's say Nigeria, and then if you can extrapolate uh, to other African countries, which you might not be able to, I don't know. But uh, yeah, and we haven't seen a lot um, that I am aware of uh, coming from Nigeria, but I would say that um, let's just talk African countries. Yeah, again, I think probably similar in that it's um, maybe malnutrition. Um, we have seen some older kids coming from Africa. And so um, it's a little bit of kind of a hybrid of malnutrition plus um, potentially periods of homelessness, um, some abuse, and then, um, you know, trauma based on, you know, how they came to be in the kind of or orphanage setting. Okay, excellent. So in general, um, the, the, the take-home message is um, post-referral, before when you're in the application standpoint, do your research, read up on what the special needs, because you're going to be asked to fill out a form um, in international adoption, is check off a list of things you are willing to consider. So uh, listen to this and then, then also, you know, do your own research. But then after you have a referral and you have medical records on a specific child, get yourself and, that, and the medical records uh, to a doctor who specializes in adoption medicine. Yeah, I think that that's um, key. And I would say that, you know, at, at a minimum, if you can get the records um, reviewed by um, a medical professional, but, um, and obviously I'm a little biased, but I think really the um, the best would be to get your uh, records to uh, someone who specializes in adoption medicine, because mm -hmm. we have kind of the benefit of since the, with the volume that we see, we, we are able to kind of spot the trends before they are kind of a known trend. Um, exactly. Exactly. And so, so, and then also we are aware of kind of the questions to ask when you're kind of reading between the lines. Um, so if you're being told that a child is, you know, quote unquote normal or developmentally on track, but then we can help the family to ask a little bit more pointed questions or ask for more pointed assessments and results um, to piece out if that's necessarily mm -hmm. the case or not. Yeah. And your adoption agency should be able to recommend an adoption medical professional. And I would also add that they don't have to be a professional that uh, lives is, is located near you. Uh, every uh, adoption medicine clinic I know of 
accepts, you know, uh, you can mail, or not mail, listen to me, you can email the, uh, scan and email the chart to them and then do the assessment over the phone. The advantage of choosing a clinic near you is that once a child is home, you can go back to that clinic and have care there as well. But uh, it's not necessary for the post-referral evaluation of medical records. So um, yeah, so keep that in mind as you're, as you're moving forward. And I believe there is a list, uh, the, um, um, the American, the, the Pediatric Association uh, has a list of medical uh, uh, doctors who specialize in adoption medicine. Yeah, definitely. And then um, also we have found some families um, if you are willing to travel, I know that all of the um, clinics naturally would be happy to see you. Um, so similarly, on the post-adoption side, if possible, um, we do see value in seeing an adoption medicine specialist for that kind of initial, you know, post-adoption mm-hmm. visit. Um, so we typically recommend, right. mm-hmm. Yeah, we typically recommend that about two to three weeks after a child has come home. Um, so we have had some families that are, you know, thankfully willing to travel. Um, you know, we've had families that even come internationally, like we've had families coming from Germany and South Africa and South America. Um, and not to add extra um, you know, visits onto a family's already busy schedule, but oftentimes those uh, visits for the adoption of medicine evaluations can be done um, annually. So not, um, so sometimes families will kind of tack it on with you know, a fun trip or whatnot um, to different okay. parts of the country. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kamara Gustafson. Uh, with the Adoption Medicine Clinic at the University of Minnesota for talking with us today about common special needs and international adoption. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me.